been doing research into lately. So please, if you would, welcome Steve Souders to the stage. Thank you very much, Paul. Yes. I'm so excited to have made it up the stairs without falling. Um, so it's great to be here in Amsterdam and to be at Frontiers. Let me get that guy going. We got this guy. Oh, hey, and we're on time. That's awesome. Uh, so I'm going to today talk about pre-browsing, um, and I actually don't put a hyphen in it. Um, so we should get that straight right out. Uh, Paul did an introduction. Um, generally, I'll just say I take slow things and make them fast. I really enjoy doing that. Um, my wife doesn't enjoy it too much when I try to optimize everything around the house, though. But for work and web development, it's been a really good thing to focus on. And what I wanted to talk about today is uh, speeding up the way that websites are loaded and improving the user experience, making our users happy by creating faster experiences. Now, often we're challenged with um, network conditions when it comes to browsing the web and using web apps. Um, Paul just mentioned uh, some caveats about using the Wi-Fi. Um, and we all face these conditions. If you're on a phone, you might have to, God forbid, actually connect to one of these things and do all of your traffic over that. And it can really slow things down. And um, when you're using the web, you can face this dreaded blank white screen where things are just loading. This is, um, unfortunately, the, the uh, prototypical website to use for slow performance, CNN.com. And I'll just mention anecdotally that um, I wanted to get this screenshot, and I was nervous about how fast I would have to capture the screen while it was still blank, and I actually didn't have to hurry at all. It was very easy to capture this blank white screen. And when users see this, um, I talked a little bit last night for people who were at the jam session about uh, feedback, browser busy indicators. There really isn't, there are some indicators in this screen to tell you that the browser is working, but really not that much. Right? And so it's going to leave our users feeling puzzled. What's going on? So what we would really like is we would like it if um, uh, we could have things done faster and before we really needed them. Kind of like Corporal O'Reilly from MASH. I might be dating myself uh, with this show, but his nickname was Radar. And he seemed to have this knack to anticipate what was needed and to have it done beforehand. And so he was a great, uh, great assistant to the um, general of the camp. And so that's what I want to talk about today. And I call this concept pre-browsing, where we want to get what the browser needs before the browser needs it. And again, I'll just mention that you know this word pre-browsing, I just made it up. Um, but in fact, I do have the domain name for it. So we'll just throw a little TM up there. Um, you might be asking, why can't the cache take care of this for me? And I totally agree with you. You know, for someone as someone who thinks that the cache is uh, need is uh, needing a lot of improvement, I will say there are some good reasons why the cache is not going to satisfy the need that I'm talking about here. First of all, the cache only works if you're repeating a visit, right? And so if you're going to a site for the very first time, there won't be anything in the cache for that. So that's a very common experience. Um, certainly from the Google search perspective, users are coming in doing uh, new searches every day. 
Um, even if you had visited the site before, those resources that are needed, the scripts and style sheets and images, might not be in the cache. You might have cleared the cache. Some other antivirus software might have cleared the cache. You might have been uh, watching a lot of YouTube videos, and so your cache uh, items were purged. Um, the items might be in the cache, but maybe the website developer didn't specify caching headers, or maybe they did, but that time has passed. And so the item in your cache might be expired. It might not be fresh, and the browser's going to have to check with the server and see if there's an update. Or the resource might, be, might not be fresh, and there actually is an update. So there are lots of reasons why, even if the cache is working well, you might not have the items that are needed to make that website load quickly in your cache. So that really got me down this path for the last couple of years. I've been thinking about this concept of pre-browsing. And it's very kind of zen-like. So let's just try to create a visual picture in our heads of what this pre-browsing thing is. Let's kind of like put some scope around it. So there are a lot of techniques for pre-browsing. I'll be talking about those today. Um, some of them have a high risk of false positives. But some of the techniques don't. They're very safe. Sometimes this risk is high. The cost could be very uh, expensive for users. Sometimes the cost isn't that high. And it's you know, a good thing to try doing. Browsers do a lot of the pre-browsing techniques that I'll be talking about. But developers have to adopt some of them too. And if you think I'm talking about you, yes, I am. That's why I'm here presenting this. So uh, I also wanted to point out the tremendous amount of time invested in the background photos of these slides. Does anyone get this one? Just the facts? It's a fax machine. Grown. Oh. There will be some other ones, too. Pay attention to these. So just the facts. OK, so here's what I'm going to cover today. Uh, I'm just checking my time. So uh, I'm going to talk about link rel DNS prefetch, link rel prefetch, link rel pre-render. I'm going to talk about things the browser does, uh, DNS pre-resolution, TCP pre-connect, uh, prefreshing, something that probably no one has heard before. And I'm going to talk about the preloader. Now, in thinking about this presentation, I thought, how should I go through these seven things? Seven is kind of the maximum for people to keep a, a mental list going in their head. How can I try to, try to present these in a way that will really stick with you? And you can follow the flow through this presentation. And I thought I could talk about it from this dimension, about who really has responsibility for each of these items, the developer or the browser. And that's a good way to think about it, but I'm going to take a different approach. I'm going to look at it chronologically. So for these seven things, let's think about it in terms of browsing the web. The preloader is going to take place on the page that you're currently loading, that you're currently looking at, right? Now, before you got to that page, you could have been on a previous page that had some of these link tags and could have gotten some things done, like Cor uh, Corporal Radar O'Reilly, before the browser actually needed them. And when you're going from that previous page to the current page, there's a transition that happens. And during that transition, there are things that the browser can do. Because during that transition time, we developers don't have any foothold, right? It's the browser that's in control. OK, so in this uh, context of chronological flow, previous, link rel, DNS prefetch, prefetch, pre-render, transition, 
DNS pre-resolution, TCP pre-connect, pre-fresh, and the current page pre-loader. Okay, let's go through these. So uh, let's set the context a little bit for this previous page. Um, we don't really know, you're on the previous page, we don't really know the user's next intention, right? So that means there's a high risk of false positives. There's a high risk that we're going to do some activity without knowing the exact thing that the user is going to do next, which link they're going to click on or what they might type in the uh, URL bar. Um, so this could be wasteful, especially for users who are on mobile and they're paying for every byte that's downloaded. But there are some high confidence scenarios that exist. And that's what you as developers, we as developers, want to focus on. Um, some examples, if you're on a search page and you search for Adventure Time, there's a high likelihood you're going to click on the leak for Cartoon Network. No response for the audience. Any Adventure Time fans? Wow, not as many as I thought. My kids will be disappointed. They were excited that I used that as the example. Um, if you're on a login page, again, very high likelihood the user's going to log in and go to their home page next. And if you're looking at a paginated uh, document of some type, again, a high likelihood the user is going to go to the next page. So there are high confidence scenarios that exist in which you could use these uh, link uh, uh, tags that I'm going to talk about. So the first is DNS prefetch. This is what the syntax looks like. You just say rel DNS prefetch, and you can put in a domain starting with slash slash. You can also put a URL if you want. That's fine. It's more characters, so just trying to be uh, optimizing performance. And this is a very low-cost item. A DNS, this will get the DNS lookup done. If the uh, DNS resolution isn't already cached on the machine, it'll get the DNS lookup done. Um, and that is maybe a couple hundred bytes total over the network. So it's a very low-cost item. It's not going to block or interfere with anything else that's going on unless you're doing dozens of DNS lookups simultaneously. Um, and browsers may actually choose, depending on other information they have, to not only do the DNS resolution, but to actually establish a TCP connection. And here's a good example from Airbnb. If you look in their uh, HTML right now, you'll see these um, references to the different CDNs that they use in their page. So how much does this save us? Here are some stats from a uh, Google article that came out a few years ago, and it shows that the median DNS lookup time is 87 milliseconds. Um, so that's, you know, a decent amount of time. That data is a little uh, old. If you wanted to, you could look up uh, Chrome Histograms DNS inside of Chrome, and you could get stats for your own browsing session. And here for me, across about 500 uh, DNS lookups, the median time was 63 milliseconds. So this is going to save some time for new domains that are being used by the page. So it's a worthwhile thing to do. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of widespread support for DNS prefetch. It's in Chrome, uh, Firefox, Firefox Mobile, IE11 is supposed to have it. I haven't verified that yet. The documentation says preliminary and subject to change. Um, so, uh, but it is a worthwhile hint to put into our pages to try to get this pre-browsing effect to happen. The other link uh, tag, the second one that I talked about was link rel prefetch. Here's the syntax. In this case, you actually put the full URL for the resource that you want to get down into the browser in anticipation of the user needing that for their next activity. Um, now, usually, 
I feel a little burden, a little weighed down when I try to read the spec. But this is the entire spec for link rel prefetch. It's so short, I'm actually going to read it. I can't read this, it's too small, so I'll read up here. The prefetch keyword may be used with link, A, and area elements. This keyword creates an external resource link. The prefetch keyword indicates that preemptively fetching and caching the specified resource is likely to be beneficial, as it is highly likely that the user will require this resource. There is no default type for resources given by the prefetch keyword. Very brief. It's hard not to go wrong with this, but um, does, this does this leave anyone wishing for more specificity? Like for me, I'd like, I'd like them to say something like, browsers should, should actually download the resource. Doesn't even mention that, right? So this left me with a lot of questions. As I started looking into this and thinking about recommending it to developers, I wondered, well, do, do browsers actually download resources? If you say link rel prefetch, how many does it download? Are they prefetched immediately or later after onload? What's the download priority? Does it compete with actual scripts on the page? Things I'm doing for the next page shouldn't compete with the current page. Um, what happens if I'm prefetching stuff and then I transition to the next page? What happens to those prefetches? And is it supported over HTTPS? So I did my usual thing. I created a browser scope user test. If you don't know what that means, look it up. Um, very helpful. I created this test and then I tweeted about it. I also put the uh, test out on prebrowsing.com. So I'm getting my $10 worth out of that domain that I booked. And I tweeted about it and I got a few hundred results across about 50 browsers. So that's what those results are what I'm going to um, present now to describe how prefetch works across different browsers. So again, we're not seeing a lot of adoption of prefetch. It's in the old Android browser, Chrome. Uh, actually, with Chrome, it turned out that we adopted Chrome, uh, link rel prefetch in Chrome pretty long ago, a couple of years ago, I think. And then it actually regressed, and it wasn't working. We just discovered that. So it's uh, patched now in 31, but you have to attach this flag, and it'll be uh, enabled by default pretty soon. Um, and it's in Firefox and Opera 15 Plus. Um, so there are some browsers that support it. So for those browsers, uh, they actually do download the resource. Um, how many prefetches are done? So this is kind of interesting. We see in Firefox, it will never do more than one prefetch at a time. So if you're trying to prefetch a lot of items, you're not going to get a big lift from Firefox. I actually pinged Patrick McManus there, and they're going to uh, revisit that and probably increase it to 6 or 10. We see Chrome uh, does 10, Chrome 31, if you enable the flag. Android does six in parallel if you shard it across multiple domains, but it will only do one at a time across a single domain. So if you have multiple items that you want to prefetch, you might want to think about sharding those. Um, what else? Oh, when are they prefetched, right? When does it actually happen? So it turns out three of the browsers don't start prefetching until after the onload event. And I kind of like that. Like, I don't want these prefetch anticipatory uh, requests competing with the actual page as it's loading. 
but waiting until onload is kind of late. Like if you think about the search experience, users might very quickly see the search results and click on a link. If I, they might even click on the link before onload happens. So right now we have a lot of, I'll talk later about the preloader, there's a lot of intelligence in browsers about prioritizing resource downloads. And I think, uh, who is it, Chrome and Opera are on a better track here where they don't wait to an absolute time. They just want to queue up these prefetch requests until all the more important requests are done. Unfortunately, they're actually not doing that right now. So uh, competing with other requests doesn't make sense if you're waiting until after onload. But for the two browsers that do uh, prefetch during the current page, they actually give them the same priority as images. So you, these prefetches could be competing with actual content on the current page, and we're fixing that in Chrome. Now this one I thought was the most interesting. What happens on page transition? Now, again, let's think about this. What I've done is I'm on a current uh, previous page, and I've said, I think I know where the user is going next. And so I want you to prefetch these scripts and style sheets. Because when they transition to the next page, they're going to need them. And when the user actually transitions to the next page, the browser cancels all those requests. Huh? Does that like not make sense to anyone else? So this is another thing that the browser teams are going to have to get on board and, and fix. And we're fixing this in Chrome. Um, we really want these requests to uh, finish, to at least complete, while the user is doing that transition. Now, in Firefox, at least today, I, I didn't read this in Chrome, and I didn't test it. Um, you can, there is a little bit of a fix you can do to uh, get around that. I'll talk about it in a minute. So one thing, if you're going to use prefetch, is to make sure that the resources you prefetch, you want to think about which resources you're going to prefetch. They should be cacheable, because all this is going to do is put it in the cache, right? And the user is going to transition to the next page. And when that page requests the item, if it's not uh, fresh, the browser is going to have to do an if modified since, do another HTTP request. It'll be nice to get a 304 not modified back. But it'd be better to prefetch items that were cacheable for at least the amount of time it takes for the user to get to the next page. Um, you want to focus on critical resources. So I would say probably you might want to do five or 10 prefetches. I wouldn't put images in there. I would focus on scripts and style sheets. You, and prefetching the HTML would make a lot of sense, but typically we don't have HTML that's cacheable. So uh, you might not do that. And this is a fix for that canceling of prefetches that I mentioned a minute ago. If your server supports the accept ranges um, header, you can do that. And what at least Firefox will do is it will save the partial response at the point it got canceled. And when the next page requests that uh, resource, it will pick it up from where it left off. But what we really want to do is we want to get the browsers to fix that cancel behavior. OK, the last of these um, link rel techniques I wanted to talk about was pre-render. It's very powerful. I think Chrome kind of took the lead on getting this one out there. Um, and this is the syntax, link rel pre-render. You give it the URL to the page that you uh, want it to pre-render. And think of it as um, loading that URL in a hidden tab or a hidden tabby. That's the groan I was looking for. Thank you. I uh, had a really hard time with pre-render, looking for images. I couldn't think of anything. 
And to be honest, the only thing I could think of was rendering fat, rendering lard, and the Flickr images were not pretty. So I went with the hidden tabby. Um, in this context, although you should use caching headers as much as possible, the caching headers aren't such an issue because the page is being loaded. It's not going to be reloaded if and when the user transitions to that page. The hidden browsers, a hidden tab is just going to be swapped into place. So you don't have to worry about the caching headers so much. Um, when that page is loaded in the hidden tab, it's just like loading it in another tab, except the user can't see that other tab. So the JavaScript is going to be executed. And this can be a little bit of a challenge for JavaScript that has to do with ads or impression counting or other things like that. So there's a page visibility API I'm not going to go into here, but you can use that to wrap your JavaScript and only execute that JavaScript if and when that tab becomes visible. Um, so this is a pretty, I talked about how some of these techniques are high risk, low risk. This is a pretty high risk technique. There's a lot of cost in doing this. Pages today, uh, the average across the top 300,000 is one and a half meg. So especially for on mobile, it's lower, but especially for people who are on mobile, you want to be careful about uh, doing, using pre-render. And even for uh, people who are on lower end um, uh, hardware, it might be a costly experience to have that activity going on in the background, not just the downloads, but also the JavaScript and CSS activity going on. Now, one way that you could reduce that risk is use something like a touch start or on mouse down. So I talked about, you know, in this previous context, we don't really know what the user's intention is, and so um, there's the high risk of false positives. But if you wait until the user is actually mousing down on a link, you can reduce this risk. You have much more certainty about what they're going to. And so you could just write an on-mouse-down handler that creates a link-rel prefetch or a link-rel DNS prefetch. I wouldn't do a link-rel pre-render because you're about to navigate to that page. But you could, for example, while you're navigating to that HTML page and waiting for the HTML to come down, you could command the browser to download some scripts and style sheets that that page is going to need. And this you can do with a lot more confidence. So it's a way to address that. OK, so let's wrap up. We've got these three phases. Again, that we're going to talk about previous, transition, current. We're in the previous one. I just finished talking about the three techniques. And let's just wrap up the support. Now, I want to point out these numbers, these version numbers, are based on the test results I got. Again, I talked to Pat McManus, Patrick McManus at Firefox. And he said they've had uh, DNS prefetch and prefetch since Firefox 12. It's just that there's no one with Firefox 12 who ran my test. So from the tests I saw, these are the version numbers that are out there. And we see pre-render is only supported right now in Chrome. Um, again, IE11 says they're going to adopt it. OK, let's go to the second uh, phase, the transition phase. Here, it's mostly the browser doing the work. I've been spending a lot of time focusing on this phase because I think it's a huge window of opportunity. Why do I think that? This is from the uh, navigation timing uh, spec. Um, it kind of looks at the flow of page loading and the times that you could get out of the window.performance timings object. Um, and it's not necessarily drawn to scale. I think this stuff after the initial response on down is much longer. So it's not drawn to scale. But still, the time that is this transition phase is quite a bit of time. So the transition phase is from 
when the navigation starts, like when you click a link, to when the first byte of the HTML document response comes back. That whole time, browsers are snoozing. What are they doing, right? Developers aren't doing anything because once you've left the page and before the next page comes down, you have no foothold. You can't be doing anything. The browser is the only one working at this point. And what's it doing? It's requesting an HTML document and then just sitting there twiddling its thumbs, right? There's a lot we could do in this, uh, in this phase of the page loading sequence. Well, it actually turns out that browsers aren't snoo snoozing. Um, a lot of browsers uh, are, have, take, have realized that this is a window of opportunity, and they're doing things in there. So one of them is DNS pre-resolution. So this is where the browser resolves the DNS that it might need before it actually needs it. How does this happen? Um, it happens with start pages. So when you start your browser, you'll see uh, you might uh, you'll see you know in the new tab the ten pages that you, that you use the most. When you start the browser, those ten DNS uh, resolutions are resolved, and you can see that in Chrome. If you go to Chrome colon slash slash DNS, you can see the ten domains that the that Chrome is going to resolve when it starts up. So that will make it faster when you go to those domains. Another thing that it can do is as you're typing a URL or a search query, it can resolve the DNS for your chosen search engine or for the website. If I type cnn.com, it can uh, resolve that DNS name before I even hit return. And you can see um, when it will do those things in Chrome, looking at Chrome predictors. So for example, I go to the HTTP, HTTP archive a lot. When I type H, Chrome will actually do a DNS resolution for httparchive.org to make sure it's fresh and already resolved before I've even typed the next character. Um, other examples when this might happen, when you load a page, the browser will scan and look at all the anchors and maybe even the image sources and script sources and make sure that the domains in those URLs, in those uh, links, are resolved. And if you hover over a mouse or a link, um, or certainly when you click down, it will make sure that that host name is resolved. That might happen if, for example, you created links dynamically with JavaScript. The browser wouldn't have seen it when it did a HTML scan, but it could see it when you actually do the hover. Um, now, those are all resolving the DNS for the page that you're going to, but that page is typically going to have about 15 domains that it uses for resources in the page. So uh, Chrome actually goes farther and tries to pre-resolve the resource domains that you're going to need. And you can see that um, database, that mapping here in Chrome DNS. So for example, for uh, web.adblade.com, there are all of these domains for sub-resources that uh, Chrome has recorded are needed. And they have different confidence values and times that it's been looked up before. And so based on that information, Chrome will actually resolve the DNS uh, lookup for those host names when you're transitioning to that page. Again, to have that time done, that 50 to 100 milliseconds already done when the page is actually loading and needs to access those resources. So another thing that happens similar to this is TCP pre-connects. This is connecting, do, creating a TCP connection to the actual web server. And that can take hundreds of milliseconds. So it's a good thing to get out of the way early. And it's kind of the next aggressive step above a DNS pre-resolution. Um, 
And so the browser will do this for high confidence navigations. What's high confidence? Well, it's based on your activity. So if we go back to this Chrome predictors, the coloring here is actually an indication of whether if it's yellow, Chrome is just going to do a DNS resolution, pre-resolution. If it's green, it's actually going to open a TCP connection, right? So this is a more aggressive thing you can do. And if we look here in Chrome DNS at the sub-resource pre-connects, you can actually see the subdomains where it has done these TCP pre-connects. So you can see for your own activity how much this is happening. Now, the last one I want to talk about is something kind of exciting uh, called Prefresh. You've probably never heard of this before. This is an idea that Tony Gentlecore and I came up with about a year and a half ago. And it's actually in Chrome now. You can turn it on with a certain flag. I didn't think of this name. Michael Kleber did. Um, so we should go ahead and put a TM on top of that. Um, and here, what happens, the concept is, just like with the DNS lookups for subdomains, um, browsers should remember for pages that you visit the actual resources that were used by that page. Those do change over time, but there is a lot of uh, time where the same resources, the same version of jQuery, the same uh, main.css is downloaded for that page over and over and over every time you visit. If only the browser could remember that, and as you're transitioning to CNN.com, the browser, without any hints of link rel prefetch, the browser could know that it's going to probably need this version of jQuery and this style sheet and could download it proactively. So that's the concept here is when you go to that web page, again, the browser can proactively preload these high confidence resources. And this is going to save a lot of time. What you would do is you would do this for the most important resources, probably scripts and style sheets, very high in the page, the ones that are most likely to block rendering of the page. Um, and so uh, when the document, HTML document comes down, the browser won't have to do a, a get request for that resource and wait for all of the jQuery to come down. It will already have it. Or maybe it already had it on cache, but it was expired, so it was going to have to do an if modified since and get a 304 response. That still isn't going to involve uh, uh, some latency impact, so it would be good to get those out of the way. And even reading that version of jQuery, if you do have it cached and it is fresh, you still have to read it off disk this prefresh could get that disk I.O. time taken care of before the HTML document, while the HTML document is being retrieved. And that way, these resources are going to be resolved, fetched, downloaded, and in memory by the time the HTML arrives, is parsed, and asked for it. So in Chrome, the way you turn this on is with the speculative resource prefetching uh, flag. And if you go into Chrome predictors and you click on the other tab, resource prefetch predictor, you can see this database of information that Chrome is building. And it records information and has a confidence score. And it sees, like, how many times have you been to that page? Out of that number of times, how many times was this resource there? How many times was it, wasn't, was it not there? And so, for example, if I go to jdrop.org, there's a very high confidence that I'm going to need style.css. Okay, so we have three phases that we were talking about, previous, transition, current. This transition phase, developers don't have much of a foothold, and luckily browsers are doing a lot of activity here. 
um, to take advantage of, of getting things in cache down into the browser before it's actually needed. So now I wanted to talk about this last phase, the current phase. And this is where we have the preloader working, right? Okay, so um, this is something that doesn't really involve developers. You don't have to do the work for it. It's done by the browser. But it is important for developers to be aware of how it works and how it's changing over time. So what really is the preloader? I think this is the biggest performance optimization made in browsers in the history of browsers ever. Bigger than new JavaScript engines, bigger than any other uh, prefetching tags that we have, I think the preloader has done more for performance than anything else in browsers. The motivation for the preloader came from observations uh, you know, I made eight years ago about how scripts were loaded back in the days of IE6 and IE7. Scripts, when you started downloading a script, the HTML parser would stop. It would hit that script source, and it would stop while it downloaded the script, parsed, and executed it. So if you had, for example, script source one, script source two, script source three, it would download one, and then after it was downloaded and parsed, it would download two. After it was downloaded and parsed, it would download three. And after it was downloaded and parsed, it would continue parsing the rest of the page. So everything was blocked downloading these scripts. And it really didn't make sense, right? Especially the downloading part. I understand that these three scripts have to be executed in order, but you could download them all in parallel. And if the third one comes back first, just cue the response and wait and parse it later while you wait for one and two to come back. And so that's what um, motivated the preloader. That's exactly what, what, that's exactly what happens now, is the uh, main HTML parser will stop at that first script tag, but the look ahead or speculative parser will continue on looking for tags like script, link, IMG, iframe. And when it sees those, it will queue up more downloads. And so we could get more parallelization in download and speed up um, page loading. A study at Google found that um, just this one change made pages 17% faster. Now, this preload activity um, involves a lot of logic, and a lot of this logic is new. There's a lot of corner cases and edge cases involved. Overall, the logic is, let's get the really important stuff, scripts and style sheets, preloaded as quickly as possible because those are, gonna, are critical to the rendering of the page, and it's going to block rendering, so we want to get those down. And so we're going to make images a lower priority, right? Even though they're important visually, it doesn't matter if I have an image downloaded if all rendering is blocked on the page waiting for a style sheet. So that's the general idea, but there are a lot of corner cases and surprises. You might notice I intentionally misspell this. I've actually changed the, uh, I've added this to my spell checker because I think a Z is more fun, and surprises should be fun. So I hope you'll join me in my campaign to change the spelling of surprise. So one surprise will come, and probably not too much of a surprise to this group, um, when it comes to responsive images loaded via JavaScript. So here, there actually is no IMG tag for that image in the page. Or if there is, it, has, it doesn't have a source attribute, it has a data source attribute. So the preloader, as it's speculative parsing down into the page, is not going to recognize that image 
and start prefetching it. So if you're using uh, responsive images, using a JavaScript technique, um, the IMG images in the page are going to be seen by the preloader, and they're going to get queued up for download first. So if these IMG images are actually a lower priority image than your JavaScript images, this could be bad for you, right? Because you're going to get these lower priority IMG images recognized by the preloader, queued up for download, and then eventually JavaScript is going to start executing. It's going to find all these data sources, figure out the right size and what to request, and it's going to queue up those requests, but they're going to be later in the queue. And this is especially problematic if all of the images are on the same domain. So one thing you can do is you can do either everything with IMG or everything with your responsive images technique. I actually saw this on a top 20 uh, website in the world where they had lower priority images done with IMG and the highest priority product images were done with JavaScript and they were showing up really, really late. These low priority images would uh, visualize would render very quickly, and it was because they were being queued up later and they were all on the same domain. So at least if you split the responsive images on a separate domain, they won't be competing for a single pool of TCP connections. So that's um, something to be aware of with the preloader. Another pattern is back in my book from 2007, I advocated putting scripts at the bottom. And now this preloader, as it scans the page and it sees these script tags, even though they're at the bottom, because the general logic is load scripts earlier, it's going to load those much higher in the download order. And so when it does that again, it's competing for this limited pool of TCP connections. It's going to steal connections from other resources that are higher up in the page, but maybe aren't scripts like images. So in uh, this scenario, you might have some images that are critical to the page. You thought, if I put my scripts at the bottom, it will give my image a chance to download first, but the preloader is going to see that script at the bottom and promote it, right? So a great example of this, and I'm sorry, I realized you can't read this. This is Airbnb, and I've highlighted there the image, which is this giant, like, 1,200 by 700, what is it? 1600 by 700 image in the background, right? Obviously, that's a critical, critical image for the user experience of this page. And they put it kind of in the middle, and at the bottom, just like my book from 2007 said, they put all of these script sources at the bottom. And the assumption might be that these will be downloaded after the critical image. So I'm going to give my critical image, which is important to the rendering user experience, a higher priority. But in fact, if we look at this dump from Chrome, this is using web page tests, from Chrome, we see that it's kind of hard. I'll go back and I'll tie it like, um, here's uh, these scripts at the bottom, b2.js, da.js. And now if we go here, we see, we'll probably see some of those. Uh, I don't see one of them there, but believe me, they are there. They got promoted above, this is the critical image. So those scripts got promoted above the critical image. Now, I was all prepared to come here and kind of whine and wince about Chrome and the preloader and try to get those guys, but there's a bug to get this fixed. And then I actually loaded it this week and found that the bug was gone. This is the dump I did back in March of uh, this year. This is the one I did this week. And they've already fixed it. This is, I think, James Simonson 
did this fix and a bunch of other good ones with the preloader. So what they did was they changed the logic a little bit and they said, we realize we're promoting these scripts from the bottom. We're going to let some images um, creep into that initial set of high priority downloads. And this relaxation of that logic was enough to get the rendering, if we look at the previous page, here that big honking image didn't render till about four seconds. Here it's rendering at 1.2 seconds. So the highlight of this, um, the main takeaway of this, is that this preload logic is something that's new. All the browsers are doing it. And it is maybe going to have some edge cases, some corner cases. Overall, it has a huge benefit of speeding up websites. But we are going to find anti-patterns, um, atypical examples of atypical behavior. And we just need to raise those up and uh, browsers can look at them. And there's probably a way to alter the logic to make the preloader work well in these scenarios. So if you're like me and you want to take slow things and make them fast, I recommend that you start thinking about these pre-browsing techniques. Uh, I recommend, even though there isn't widespread support, I think there's enough support across major browsers to think about using DNS prefetch, prefetch, and pre-render. And I think you can also lobby the browser vendors that you know to uh, get those techniques supported. Um, I think if you are a browser uh, developer, that is good to continue to, to consider something like Prefresh, to look at the code. It's all open source in Chrome. Um, and to work on these DNS pre-resolution and pre-connect techniques. And for both browser developers and website developers to continue looking at the preloader, making sure you understand how that is impacting your site today and, and seeing if there are techniques that you should adopt to make the preloader look, work well with your site and for browser developers to make sure, sure that preloaders work well with as many sites as possible. I just want to do one last shout out before I leave the stage is uh, I started working on this deck a while ago, and during the time uh, my office mate, Ilya Grigoric's book came out, and I started looking through there, I saw that he had written down a lot of the uh, things that I had been trying to figure out. So uh, it was a good corroboration of the things I'd been looking for, and if you want to read more about these techniques and get the details, of course, these are just high-level slides. I recommend you take a look at the book. You could buy it. That would be great. I'm sure he would love the royalties, um, but it's also available free online. And that's it. Thank you very much. Do we have time for Q&A? Yeah, we do. Oh, cool. Join me right here. Uh, all right. There was, uh, there was a lot of um, people talking during, uh, during your presentation. And one of the themes that came up a bit was around uh, mobile data plans. So a lot of these techniques allow us to like, you know, speculatively get new data. If people are on data plans where they pay by the byte, like how is, do, are these an anti-pattern in those cases? Or how do we handle that? Yeah, that's gonna be a hard problem. I was talking to someone last night about the um, uh, suggested network API changes so that mobile web pages could know what kind of connection the user is on. But it, that's still a, a problem. You know, you might be on Wi-Fi and you're actually having to pay for it, or you might be uh, on a roaming plan that you don't have to pay for. 
Um, so one thing you'll notice is for the, so first of all, for the DNS prefetch stuff, on, uh, the real killer is latency. And um, DNS involves latency, right? Even though overall it's not a long amount of time, 100 milliseconds, it is going to uh, be worse on mobile. And it's a very low-cost item, like I said, a couple hundred bytes. And so at least for mobile, a DNS prefetch, and for browsers, this DNS pre-resolution stuff makes total sense. If you notice, pre-render is in Chrome. It's not in Chrome for mobile, at least not yet. And so that's something that we have to take into consideration. And it might be that um, uh, pre-render and maybe even leak rel prefetch aren't going to make sense on mobile until we have some way to verify that users are okay with um, doing that kind of proactive downloading activity. Yeah, go ahead and pull that off, thanks. Um, one article I pointed out yesterday, if you Google for multi-nets, all one word, Angela, Angela Nickaru. Well, Multi-nest? Nets. Multi-nets. Yeah. Um, it's a great paper. And it talks about, basically what they did was uh, they took a version of Android and rewrote some of the network interface management code so that there was a new UI in Android where you could pick one of three targets that you wanted to optimize. My battery life, my uh, data plan usage, or the speed of loading. And based on that selection, it would, use, it would alter the way that your network interfaces were being used, especially when you had multiple network interfaces available to choose from. And I think it's, that was the, aside from all the technical stuff in it, that simple concept of letting users have a simple choice of what their target optimization is, I think is something we should think about. I th mobile uh, developers, mobile OS developers should think about. I think that would be really important and would help in this context. Yeah. Um yeah, I, I totally, there's a lot of cases where maybe I'm, I'm tethering through, like, the signals for, oh, I'm on Wi-Fi, so it doesn't matter. Like, you, I, might, I might actually be connected from Wi-Fi to my phone, and, but my phone might be on an international data plan. There's a lot of things. It's hard to make assumptions in this area. Um, I guess we should also point out the, the Network Information API um, has kind of been a proposal for a while, and it, it's not implemented anywhere. It does have this concept, actually I think it was an earlier draft to this concept of a metered property where you could identify if the data plan is basically in a situation where they are pained by the byte. Um, as far as I know, there's no implementation there. But it's a little tricky, right, because this might be a thing where you don't actually want developers to be able to make a choice about this. You would rather just kind of have the browser do the best thing so that you as a developer aren't choosing kind of what sort of pre-behavior you want. Um, one question uh, in your, uh, in the browser support table, um, I think a few people noticed that mobile Safari, they were not seeing mobile Safari there. So do you, can you speak to mobile Safari support for some of these things? Yeah, there isn't uh, support for it in mobile Safari or Safari. I don't think Safari showed up on any of the right. uh, tables either. And, you know, Safari, uh, as of today, still doesn't support the nav timing API. I mean, the code's in WebKit, but it's not turned on. That flag isn't turned on. And so, you know, I don't know, uh, but yeah, certainly there are some things that have to do with performance that are lagging there. Yeah. Um, one question, so actually, before, uh, before working on the Chrome team, um, like four years ago, I filed a ticket against Chrome, and I was like, I was like, why can't Chrome just cache jQuery? Um, why can't it just have you know everything that's in the Google CDN just like permanently in the disk cache? Um, like, is that is that a good idea? 
Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good idea. I think, I don't know, um, it turns out, and I think we're all pretty aware of the articles that show the amount of fragmentation around things like jQuery. You know, the most popular version of jQuery is the one from a year and a half or t two years ago. And so, you know, it might be kind of hard to have all of those versions in the browser permanently. Um, and then, you know, it would kind of get hard, like, where do you draw the line? Like, you know, the fifth most popular JavaScript framework might be really hurt that it didn't make the cut. And, you know, there might be, you know, some allegations about political motivations or something like that. And so that's this prefresh concept is meant to kind of try to target that. Like, for some reason, that version of JavaScript might not be in the cache, but I have information that you're going to need it. And so I can make sure to pre-warm the cache before the page even asks for that resource. Mm. Nice. Um, one last question. Uh, this, this just came up. Uh, Jorn asked this. He said, I'm confused. Should we put scripts at the bottom or not? Oh, I didn't even talk about that. So the real thing, like, you know, scripts at the bottom was so 2007. Pull that off, thanks. Um, one article I pointed out yesterday, if you Google for multi-nets, all one word, Angela, Angela Nickaroo. Multi-nest? Nets. Multi-nets. Yeah. Um, it's a great paper, and it talks about, basically what they did was uh, they took a version of Android and rewrote some of the network interface management code so that there was a new UI in Android where you could pick one of three targets that you wanted to optimize. My battery life, my uh, data plan usage, or the speed of loading. And based on that selection, it would, use, it would alter the way that your network interfaces were being used, especially when you had multiple network interfaces available to choose from. And I think it's, that was the, aside from all the technical stuff in it, that simple concept of letting users have a simple choice of what their target optimization is, I think is something we should think about. I th mobile. Uh, developers, mobile OS developers should think about. I think that would be really important and would help in this context. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I totally, there's a lot of cases where maybe I'm, I'm tethering through like the signals for, oh, I'm on Wi-Fi so it doesn't matter. Like, you, I, might, I might actually be connected from Wi-Fi to my phone, and, but my phone might be on an international data plan. There's a lot of things, it's hard to make assumptions in this area. Um, I guess we should also point out the, the network information API um, has kind of been a proposal for a while, and it, it's not implemented anywhere. It does have this concept, actually I think it was an earlier draft to this concept of a metered property where you could identify if the data plan is basically in a situation where they are pained by the byte. Um, as far as I know, there's no implementation there. But it's a little tricky, right, because this might be a thing where you don't actually want developers to be able to make a choice about this. You would rather just kind of have the browser do the best thing so that you as a developer aren't choosing kind of what sort of pre-behavior you want. Um, one question uh, in your, uh, in the browser support table, um, I think a few people noticed that mobile Safari, they were not seeing mobile Safari there. So do you, can you speak to mobile Safari support for some of these things? Yeah, there isn't uh, support for it in mobile Safari or Safari. I don't think Safari showed up on any of the right. uh, tables either. And, you know, Safari, uh, as of today, still doesn't support the nav timing API. I mean, the code's in WebKit, but it's not turned on. That flag isn't turned on. And so, you know, I don't know, uh, but yeah, certainly there are some things that have to do with performance that are lagging there. Yeah. 
Um, one question. So actually, before uh, before working on the Chrome team, um, like four years ago, I filed a ticket against Chrome, and I was like, I was like, why can't Chrome just cache jQuery? Um, why can't it just have you know everything that's in the Google CDN just like permanently in the disk cache? Um, like, is that is that a good idea? Yeah, I think that's. I think that's a good idea. I think, I don't know, um, it turns out, and I think we're all pretty aware of the articles that show the amount of fragmentation around things like jQuery. You know, the most popular version of jQuery is the one from a year and a half or t two years ago. And so, you know, it might be kind of hard to have all of those versions in the browser permanently. Um, and then, you know, it would kind of get hard, like, where do you draw the line? Like, you know, the fifth most popular JavaScript framework might be really hurt that it didn't make the cut. And, you know, there might be, you know, some allegations about political motivations or something like that. And so that's this prefresh concept is meant to kind of try to target that. Like, for some reason, that version of JavaScript might not be in the cache, but I have information that you're going to need it. And so I can make sure to pre-warm the cache before the page even asks for that resource. Mm. Nice. Um, one last question. Uh, this, this just came up. Uh, Jorn asked this. He said, I'm confused. Should we put scripts at the bottom or not? Oh, I didn't even talk about that. So the real thing, like, you know, scripts at the bottom was so 2007. I still feel good about <laughs> it, you know? They're terrible in the head, right? Yeah. Uh, well, no, they're great in the head if you make them async or defer. Okay. Right? So the real thing we should do is adopt, uh, adopt async or, or defer patterns for scripts. Yeah. So if you can put all those scripts at the bottom, it means that they're... Um, so probably the more important thing than position is the ability to place async on them. Yeah. Okay. Or defer. The thing about async is then you have race conditions about execution order. Yeah. Defer will preserve execution order. Defer has, the, there's this race condition bug in defer that's in I6, 7, 8, and 9, I think. Oh, really? Um, basically, yeah. So uh, I ran into this. Um, we have a doc, you can just like Google um, a defer attribute bug. Um, but basically, Let's say, a common case, jQuery, jQuery UI, have those two as script tags and you have defer on both of them. There's this bug in IE where um, if the first script, like jQuery, touches the DOM, uh, it'll start to execute the second script right after it touches the DOM before the rest of the first has finished. Oh. And so in this case, it'll start to run jQuery UI and it'll be like window.jQuery is not defined. So the prob probably the best solution there is, is defer as long as it's not, as long as you're not serving it to IE, IE so 8 and 9. I, I would bet um, maybe you have a test page or I can do one really yes. quick when I go sit down. Yeah, at least. I bet if you put an inline script block that does nothing or just says var foo equals 1 between those two script sources, yes. it will separate the execution, right? Because... I like it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure like Matthias Bienes is already doing this as, as we're talking. Okay, yeah. We'll figure that out. Yeah. Right. Uh, even though it's not in the spec, IE respects the defer attribute even for inline scripts. It does? Yeah. IE does? Yeah. Oh, and no one else does. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. It's not supposed to, but it does. All right. All right. Thank you guys very much. Thanks for Q&A. <laughs> Woo! Have fun.